Well, uh, the other day I got into this thing of wondering about Egypt and prophecy and what that means uh, in a larger sense. And I want to get into that and answer some of the questions, but I think we have to, <laughs> as in most cases, go back to the beginnings in Genesis and begin to formulate a story and put the situation together to understand the flow of people around the earth, uh, things that have transpired in history, and what is about to transpire. And the more we can understand about who is who and where they are and where they've been, the better we can understand what's happening with mankind and what God is doing. And that's important for us all. Uh, but I think we have a very narrow view. Uh, there are many errors that have been made throughout history, and there have been many things that have been covered up, other things declared spurious or a hoax. And uh, we've got 6,000 years here to try to figure out the movements of mankind and who is who. Now look for a moment at how difficult it is today to get a true view of what's happening on earth. We have email, internet, television, radios, telephones, satellite communications, instant communication pretty much all over the earth. Cell phones, uh, we're in electronically interconnected almost unbelievably. And yet, things can be going on on this earth that A, we either don't know about, B, have a biased view over the news media about, uh, some lies, outright lies, and distortions. And something as recent as World War II which most in this room can remember, uh, has already had its history changed. And many of the reports out of Asia and the World War II were wrong. Uh, only small quotes were taken in some cases out of a whole speech and distorted. Uh, but... Now, there are millions and millions of people on this earth that don't even believe that the Holocaust occurred in Germany. And I've talked to people who were there back in the 60s in Miami, and I saw the tattoos on them that were put on them when they went into the camps. I visited uh, Buchenwald and, oh, what was the other one? when I was there in the early 60s in Germany. And there was still a great deal of, of evidence there. Why would the Germans preserve it if they wanted to hide it? And yet they had it there and they had pictures and everything laid out. Uh, there were bullet holes in the walls. Could that have been fab fabricated? I suppose so. But why would the Germans do it themselves? That was the evidence that remained that they had not yet removed or that man had not glossed over. So even with all the modern communication, uh, we get a distorted view of what's happening in the world right now and has recently happened. And then we know of the book burnings 
uh, that occurred when the Catholic Church wanted to keep mankind in ignorance and uh, tried to destroy all printed matter, which was all written out then, but didn't have printing presses either, uh, and burned the uh, biggest library in Alexandria and Egypt and destroyed all kinds of records. So, uh, just recently, you see, and going back away, we have problems understanding what's going on. And when you get way back further than that, it gets even more difficult. Out of all this, thankfully, we have one thing we can trust. That's this book. And in sorting through some things to try to figure out where people have been, and I will tell you, but before we're done, Jerusalem, near here, uh, is going to be a key to understanding where nations and peoples have gone. Because the biblical record attests uh, the goings-on around Jerusalem and the Promised Land and so on, and can be tied together. And if you understand that was here, and that a counterfeit was built over there, then it's going to clear a lot of things, and it will explain some things that are found on the uh, North and South American continents that mankind has no real understanding or knowledge or what to do with or how these things got there. But if you understand what's here, then the picture comes clearer. So the Bible itself is our biggest guide. And there are a lot of things that you have in your mind's eye. You have images of the way a certain people looked. And that's not the true picture at all. And we'll see some of that as we go along. Now, I want to go back to Genesis 2. Now, this is going to have some implications in terms of race as well. Because when you start talking about mankind and where he is on the earth and some of the specific prophecies, some of those prophecies have to do with Israel. Uh, and Israel has sinned greatly against God and is going to be devastated. Ninety percent killed off by famine, pestilence, disease, and war. So if you think Israel uh, is better than other peoples, uh, maybe you should think again. Uh, God calls Israel, Ezekiel 16, the great whore, and goes on to describe her. So if you want to uh, look at someone who is Semitic or Assyrian or American or Israelite as a superior race, Maybe you better examine the Bible. Uh, some who put themselves above Ham or above Japheth need to think about that. Some, you know, you're going to have people, whoever you are, wherever you are, what is man? Man is altogether vanity. He likes to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. He likes to think he's better than those around him. That is just the viewpoint that human beings have. If someone's different from you, they're lower or not as good or not as smart or not as pretty or not as whatever as you are. That's just the way a vain human mind works. And I don't know 
you know, to what extent racism has been a problem throughout history. I know it's been a problem recently in our history here. It's been a problem around the world with peoples fighting each other and in some cases eating each other and uh, captivating and enslaving one another. This is the history of mankind. And it is not a history of some who are worse than others or some who are better than others. But all mankind has sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, when we consider these things, and you're going to see as we go through it that this race over here, somebody there had a problem. Over here, somebody had a problem. If you want to look for problems, you can find them anywhere. So, let's not be that way. Now, if some of you have any residual feelings that were trained into you as children or that you came to have for whatever reasons about uh, racism or one is not as good as the other, or they should not be together, they might contaminate or, you know, whatever. It comes in all forms and fashions and sometimes we even make condescending statements and don't even know we're doing it. How many times have I heard over the years, I mean decades, uh, before I knew any of you, someone say, well, I knew so-and-so and they were black, but they were nice, or something of that nature. Well, you know what the inference is there? They're all pretty bad, but that one was nice. Now, you aren't thinking that, but that's what that says. And our nation has been full of that. Now, a lot of it has gone away by degrees since uh, segregation went away and, and so on. But that's just in our nation. And now we're getting a racial barrier built up between whites and browns or Mexicans coming in. And there's a prejudice that could be there in some ways that is legitimate because they're taking over or beginning to take over our land. So there could be reason for being upset about that, don't get me wrong, but let's not turn it into a racial thing with the Mexicans. It's a national and a political problem. It is not necessarily a racial issue. But racial issues have been and probably will be until we all are turned into God someday, we hope. But among ourselves, particularly, we need to be very, very careful and repent of any of that that might be in us in any form or fashion or feeling or shadow, or turning, or whatever, because remember what Paul said, in Christ we are neither bond nor free, Greek nor Jew, male nor female. That's pretty inclusive. I mean, I can look in the room, and I see male and female very obviously. I don't see bond and free, because nobody here is a slave. Well, some of you kids think you are when you have to do chores, but uh, never mind but we're, in Christ, all exactly the same. Man is not better than woman. Uh, black or brown or yellow is not better than white or vice versa. And slave or free is also unimportant. Uh, we are all exactly the same. And we need to understand that, not just intellectually, but emotionally.
and we should not show any prejudice. Uh, and I think that this is coming up right now, brethren, for a very important reason. I think we had to go through the two trees. I think God led me to approach that. And I think now, partially uh, from that, or as a lead into this, along with some other pressures and so on that have occurred, uh, let's understand that very shortly, something we've all been anticipating is going to happen. A remnant of God's church is going to gather. And they're going to gather from the four corners of the earth. And they're going to come from every race and every language, maybe that there is. Now, there may be some smaller areas that are not represented, but certainly the three major races uh, and the Browns that have come from those three and all kinds of people, uh, who knows who, are going to show up. And we are to be blended together into one body, one mind, so that there is a oneness that there is between the Father and the Son. Uh, I emphasized that a little bit during the Passover service itself, and you may have noticed that I even went to 1 Corinthians 12, which I normally do not include in the Passover service. But as I was sitting there in the chair, it just I glanced over there from 1 Corinthians 11, and I saw about the unity and the body and the different parts, and I thought, I need to read that. Uh, God wants us here to become one in love and depth of feeling and emotion so that there's no difference among us. That we can learn to love and we can learn if there are any prejudices whatsoever to put them aside and to love as the Father and the Son love. That's what we're called upon to do. And we don't have much of that right now. Uh, we all pretty much here are old-timers in the church and grew up in uh, a church culture. And I hope that there's not much of that left in us. But at the same time, you're going to have people from all over the world who themselves may have cultural differences who may be neighbors in one country to another who are, well, let's say you have a Paki and an Indian. Pakistan and India are always at each other's throats and threatening each other with nuclear bombs. You might have a, a, a Palestinian and an Israeli. Uh, you know, they might show up here to be a part of the end-time remnant of the church of God that is to be a light to the world of peace and joy and love together such as you would see in the millennium. And we will be called upon to help those people get rid of any strife and racism and hatred across national or racial barriers that they may have. Now, most of them, or all of them, will have been in the church, and they may understand these things to some degree. But they may have only had a feast in Thailand with Thai people. They may not have had a feast 
or gotten together with someone from Vietnam. And the Asians, you don't dare call a Korean uh, a Vietnamese or a North Korean a South Korean. or they're, they're very touchy about their background. It hasn't been too long ago I met somebody and I made some comment about uh, where they were from and I goofed. And the conversation almost ended. I am not, whatever it was, it was Asian, one of those. Uh, so, uh, do we understand what's coming down? We're not just a little isolated group out here that's going to stay the way we are. This is going to change, and it is going to change dramatically in the next weeks or years to come. I don't think it's too far off. But uh, maybe going through these prophecies about some of the different nations and peoples instead of just focusing on Israel is something that God wants of us now because He knows that we're not going to be just dealing with Israel. We're going to be, this is going to be an international deal that comes together, uh, kind of like a major conference of the nations. And you know how that is. Sometimes you get representatives of the leaderships of the governments of the different nations together in a U.N. meeting and so on, and there's not much peace there because there are open wounds between countries. So uh, I preface where we're going with these remarks because I think we need to understand where we are going and what some of the implications may be down the road and to think about it and pray about it and be sure our attitudes and our minds and our emotions are in line with what is going to be necessary to do the job that we have to do. Not only are we to get along with these who are coming in, but the way we love each other is to be a witness to the world that, you, they, that all men will know that you are my disciples in that you love one another. So you're going to be called upon to love peoples of different languages from all over the world. Now, they won't all speak English, will they? There are a lot of people who had to have translators, and you know, when the ministry would come or something, uh, into their area, their country, their feast site. Now, will God give us a gift of tongues? Will He undo Babel? Uh, where they babbled at each other and didn't understand and split all over the world. Now, I've thought that he, we might need the gift of tongues when we get under Jerusalem and find some of the original writings that nobody could read, and God might give us the capacity to read those things. But here could be another application. We get all these peoples together, and uh, that's the way it was in Acts 2, wasn't it? They had these people from all over these different countries. May have, many of them may have been Jews, but they were from all over the world and they spoke the language of the country they came from. And God performed a miracle there whereby, whereby they heard what was being said in their own tongue. So you didn't need translators. And we may be in the exact same situation shortly where people come who don't understand our language and we don't understand theirs. Are we ready for that? Can we handle that? Do 
we love one another enough that we can bind together and then spread that love to them and do it in such a manner that it will be astounding to and a witness to the rest of the world that mankind from all over can live in peace with each other. I never thought of that before until just this moment. But uh, that's what's coming. And maybe we need to look at some of these things ahead of time and it will help us get ready for what is to come. Because we may or may not be quite ready. I, I don't know what state of readiness we're in. I don't know how much true love we really have of God. Uh, we're here striving to keep His commandments and are, for the most part, I think, keeping them. Uh, so we do have the love of God among us because that's what the love of God is. And yet, within each and every one of us, we have the flesh warring against the Spirit uh, not wanting to keep all the commandments all the time. It's just a simply a struggle that human beings deal with because the, the commandments of God lead to giving and loving and sharing, as Herbert Armstrong would have said, but human nature leads to selfishness and I want what I want, the way I want it, when I want it, where I want it. And that is the eternal struggle between the works of the flesh and living and walking in the Spirit. So that's the struggle we face, and, and it can be multiplied many times over if suddenly we had 7, 8, 10, 15,000 people in here who couldn't understand each other from all different walks of life, and, and not only language, but culture. Look at the cultural differences that will suddenly show up. You know, when you go into... Asia, for instance, you offend greatly if you say some things. Oh, my, they're ready to run you out of the country or kill you. If you I mean, you can insult them greatly just because of their culture. Uh, I know in the Mexican culture, and I've used this because I learned it in Spanish class, the, the individual is never responsible for anything that went wrong. Now, of course, human beings, by nature... Every, every human being wants to justify himself, blame it on somebody else uh, or whatever. Uh, but in Spanish, I remember that expression, la taza se rompió, uh, the cup dropped itself and broke itself. I didn't do it. It fell off the table and broke itself. That is their culture. We are a little more open, and sometimes we take blame for something that happened. Well, I dropped the stupid thing. We call it stupid, but we did the dropping, you know. We, we, we temper it a little bit. But we will say, I did do it. But if you accuse them of doing it, it's an insult. Clearly it did it to itself. I didn't do it. So that's just, that's just a little minor cultural difference there. And there are some vast chasms of differences from part to part of the earth in their habits, their practices, and how easily they're insulted. So hopefully there are converted minds coming here, and hopefully we have converted minds, and the love of God and His commandments and His way of life can supersede and overcome 
these human differences that we'll have to deal with. You think it's hard getting along with each other now when we're many of us in family groups and, uh, and have been in the church for 30, 40, 50 years and on and on and on it goes and yet we still have our little between and among ourselves. Uh, somebody says, well, we just can't have peace out here. Well, I don't agree with that. I think we do essentially have peace. Uh, we don't have homicide, homicide threatened too often. Or, you know, I'm going to go back where I came from. I can't get along with you people. You know, uh, we, we don't have a lot of great verbal battles and swinging two-by-fours at each other and, and a lot of the pitched battles that the world has. We have our little attitudes from time to time and we have our little backbitings and stuff and that's human and you know we get offended and we offend and uh, and yet on the other hand you know we tease each other mercilessly around here pretty much back and forth and, and nobody much takes offense it's family you know uh, and you got to almost be in a family situation in order uh, to do as we do and not give offense too often but I, I don't think most of us take offense and we understand the uh, uh, context of, of what's being said. So, uh, I think we are essentially living in peace. Uh, as, as long as there are human beings in this realm, there will not be total peace, if that's what you're looking for. But, you know, feelings get hurt. Mine do, yours do, everybody's do. But we get over it, don't we? And, and we're still friends and family. And that's the way it ought to be. And it just needs to get better and better as time goes on. That's all. Anyway, uh, I want to start here in Genesis 2, 7. An eternal God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living naphash or soul. Now, it just says dust of the ground here, but the Hebrew seems to indicate red dirt, red dust. Uh, and perhaps we're reading a certain amount into it, but if he made him of red dust and his name was Adam, because it was red dirt instead of black soil or brown soil or, or uh, white sands of New Mexico or whatever, if, he's made for, if he was made from the dust and he was named red dirt, or red dust, I have the feeling that he was the world's first red man. Now, we call the Indians red, but they're not really red. They're pretty much brown. Well, there's a little coppery sheen once in a while here and there. But uh, I find it interesting that God used red dirt. Now, there may have been several reasons for that. One might be as a place identification because there are only limited places on earth where there is red dirt, and uh, those places don't qualify by any means to be the place where Jerusalem and the Promised Land is. I mean, Georgia has red dirt, uh, but it doesn't have mountains and desert and wilderness and some of the things that have to be around Jerusalem and seas and so on. So it's automatically disqualified. So this is just one more qualifying factor that the dirt where he was made is an area where you would find the Garden of Eden and I think probably Jerusalem and certainly the Promised Land. 
So it's just one more indicator. Now, on a, let's say, a racial basis, if Adam were red, the three races that came down uh, from either the Garden of Eden or from the flood on, however it happened, and there's no knowing for sure, but however it happened, we have basically the Japhetic or yellow races, the Semitic or pale faces, and the Hamitic or black races. Those are the three major races that came from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, well, Adam wasn't any of those. Now, we read that by one man's sin came into the world, and Adam typifies that sin. We saw that the other day. <coughs> I think it is interesting that no, no one could claim primacy or to be the master race or the best race because they're the same color as Adam. Because Adam apparently was red and the rest of us are black, yellow, or pale, or white. And out of those mixtures come brown, not red. So in one sense, Adam can represent us all in that he was maybe a mixture of all the colors on earth that turned out red, but not one, so primacy could be claimed in any way. Uh, and those things came later. Now, one man, Christ, represents all of us. Now, he came on the earth as a Jew. He had to come as something. And that was the line that God, because of Abraham, was using later on. If there had been a different righteous man God used than Abraham, it might, things might have been different. But that's a faithful man, and probably the only one really around, and God used him. Therefore, Christ had to be in that line. But ultimately, what he was here on the earth in terms of racial structure means nothing. Absolutely nothing. Remember, we're neither bond nor free, Greek nor Jew in Christ. Because in his glorified state, his face shines like the sun. Every color is in sunshine. Uh, he's in his glorified state. He's the rainbow. I don't mean rainbow coalition. I mean the beauty of all the colors in the spectrum is in the face of the Father and the Son. So, he only represented us as a sinful human man, a Jew, but all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God, so that puts us all in the same category as the red man Adam, doesn't it? So Christ was there as one of us, and what separated him was not that he was a Jew. What separated him was that he was sinless. A sinless man from any race would have been of paramount importance. So it wouldn't have mattered what race he came in. What mattered was his conduct. And that's why it doesn't matter whether we're Greek or Jew, Gentile or Israelite or whatever. We have to be like Christ who was sinless, and we are not going to become ultimately like he was while he was on the earth, are we? We're going to become what he became when he went back to his Father in heaven, and there is no race involved there. He represents all 
and we will be like Him and glorified. So at that point, as far as I can see or understand or know from the Scripture, there will be no race uh, differentiation in the kingdom of God. We'll all be the same. Spiritually, we're all uh, rendered or considered the same right now. And then we will all be the same together in a glorified state. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth at that point, I think, just go away and everyone shines like the sun. So why did God make the races the way he did now? I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. Uh, But he had a plan and a purpose in it, obviously, or it wouldn't have happened that way. Uh, So we need to respect each other as the children of God, no matter what our race. And as I said at the beginning, um, it doesn't matter who you want to pick out. If you want to look at the end-time prophecies, everybody's going to get it in the neck. And only those who are like Christ is now and was as he walked the earth, keeping the commandments of God, are going to be saved out of it and counted worthy to escape what's about to happen to the world. And that's what it really boils down to. So, just a comment on Adam and, and Eve who was with him. She was made from his rib, and I assume that they were made alike in terms of coloration and so on. I don't know that. Somebody said he's made out of, she was made from his rib, so she must have been bone white. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. We can apply all kinds of logic, <laughs> uh, real logic or whatever, uh, I mean, we can imagine things, but we can only, uh, to some degree, speculate. And what I'm saying about him being red and therefore not of the same colors as the rest of the races of the earth uh, may or may not be a, a valid thought, but uh, I think it's interesting considering that he is a representation of all sinful man, no matter what color. So you can't blame sin. We're going to get to Cain here in a little bit, aren't we? I'm building this. We're going to get to Cain in a bit, and he killed his brother. Well, uh, what color was Cain? What color was uh, Abel? We don't know that for sure, but I'm going to throw a a possibility at you. Uh, And if it it is not so, then we come to Nimrod, who we're going to find obviously a black man, And he led the rebellion after the flood. So immediately we could get down on black people. Well, uh, no, we got to go back. Who sinned first? Adam. And every man has sinned since. So what we need to be guarding against, and what I've been building up here, is let's not lay blame on any one human being. There have been rebellious leaders Uh, in every race of mankind. Now, if you want to say, well, he led in that rebellion, fine, but he was also probably a great leader of men, a very capable, very intelligent man, to be able to take all of mankind and draw them together in a sole and single purpose. That takes quite a bit of capacity and ability, does it not? So let's don't diss somebody because, hey, he was the first one that did this or he was the first one that did that. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't fly. Uh, so if, if there's any of that vestige in us, I, I'm trying to help us ameliorate that 
to set it aside and not be that way. Now, uh, Satan is the great deceiver, and he was the first real sinner. And he is the one that led Adam and Eve into sin. wasn't too hard a chore, but he got it done. And he's led all of us into sin since. Now, we have in chapter 4 of Genesis a story of Adam and Eve and the beginning of their family. Uh, There are some wild tales that go on between Genesis 4 and Genesis 6. Some of them uh, have ideas about race involved. Some even go so far as to say that uh, aliens and fallen angels cohabited with women. And it it really gets wild between Genesis 4 and 6. And I want to try to make some sense out of that so that as we go on, we may understand some things. Now, it says here, Adam knew Eve, his wife, uh, and this was in a, an intimate way, not just understood or had met. Hi, Eve. Uh, this, this is King James' translation from a very Victorian era. Please understand. So, uh, he had a relation of some kind here that caused a conception, and she bore Cain. And said, I have gotten a man from the eternal. And she again bare his brother Abel. Now it does not say here that he knew her again. Now in many of the genealogies it will say, well, he knew his wife and she uh, gave birth to so-and-so. And then he knew his wife and she gave birth to so-and-so. And it will say he knew each time so you know it's a separate deal. In this particular case it doesn't say that. Now, if you go over to verse 25, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. So it was a separate deal. These weren't triplets, if you will. And this was after Cain uh, was having children down in verse 17, and Lamech had two wives and so on. Now, I don't know whether it was a period of many years before uh, Adam and Eve had another child, uh, <laughs> maybe they were so upset with each other, they didn't even get in the same area for quite some time. Who knows? Uh, because there was there were some real attitudes between them, I'm sure, after what had transpired, and as they got into the hard life and the curse that God said would be upon them. Uh, that's an aside, but be that as it may, uh, it, it makes it known here that before she had the third child, Seth, he knew her again. And that is not the case here in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. So I think the logical conclusion here, based on the way these things are written up generally in the Bible, is that Cain and Abel were twins. And we know the story of how one killed the other, Cain killed his brother, And God took him to task for it and then put a special curse on him as a result of it. Now, we're going to get into chapter, kind of hold that thought. We're going to move on over to chapter 6, and we may come back here to chapter 4 to pursue a thought. Now, 
Uh, Noah was a righteous man, we find at the end of chapter 5, and he was a hundred years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So he had those three sons, and they are the sons of Noah. Whether he had other children or not, uh, it doesn't really say. He had other family, I'm sure, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, whatever, and parents. Uh, but the story is germane to these three sons. And it came to pass, chapter 6, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. Uh, when you start having kids, so far we've really only talked mostly about the sons, because family line goes through sons. But inevitably, uh, you're going to have daughters. Uh, about half of the kids born are girls. But he's, he's starting here to make a point. Uh, to, yeah, of course we know there were girls around, but there's, there's something, a point being made. Daughters were born to them, and it came to pass that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, they were nice to look at, good looking, uh, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, is it wrong to choose a particular wife? No, not in the normal course of human events. This is talking about a particular circumstance and something that was not done right. Uh, they had taken wives back in the past, says, And Lamech took unto him, verse 19 of chapter 4, two wives. The name was Ada and the other was Zillah. And then it talks about the children they had and so on. So there is no censorship in taking a wife. Uh, never has been in that sense, unless it's done in a wrong way with the wrong kind of wife or whatever. So there is something amiss here is the point that's being made, okay? Amiss, that has miss on it, that's girl. Uh, it's funny how our language works. Uh, so they took those which they chose, and the Eternal said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. There was a conflict. There was this breach that we talked about in the Two Trees uh, series. Uh, God had a way that He wanted man to be, and He looked down and things worked that way. So there was strife. And God is not the author of confusion and strife and uproar. He's the author of peace and joy and love and happiness and those qualities, that's the fruit of His Spirit. So He said, My Spirit will not always strive with man. In other words, we've got a problem here, boys and girls. I'm going to fix it sooner or later. I can only live with this so long. And then I'm going to put my foot down. That's implied in the context. For that He also is flesh. I don't have to strive with man. I'm Spirit. I'm here. Man is causing problems in the universe, and he's flesh, and I can deal with that. God knows how to fix flesh where it doesn't cause trouble anymore. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, up to this point, mankind had been living up to almost a thousand years. It's a long time. You take a woman you wanted to marry, and she's three, four hundred years old, she's Pretty good looking still. You know, she hadn't aged much. 
Uh, if you're going to live 965 at age 30, 300, or 400, you're just a chick. Uh, maybe 30-ish. But he's going to cut it down to 120. Uh, he says, <laughs> that's one way I'm going to do it. They're not going to live this long anymore. They can only get in so much trouble in 100 years, or 120 years. And then later, you know, he cut it slowly from 1,000 down to 750 to 500 to uh, 150, and then down to 120. And then he finally said, oy vey. that's Jewish for, oh wow, uh, I'm going to cut it to 70. And he finally did that. He says, man, human nature being what it is, I don't think they ought to live beyond a certain point. Now, verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. Now, here's where they begin to say that angels, fallen angels came in and married women, which is uh, unscriptural. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, so they use sons of God here to say this is angels, uh, and they bore children of them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Uh, well, let's understand that this idea of angels marrying women doesn't work. Matthew 22, verse 30, you might want to key that in next time somebody brings up this inane idea. And it is, it is not a new idea. It was circulated back, oh, thousand years ago and hundreds of years ago by some. And it's recently made a, a comeback, and there are all kinds of books about it now. But chapter 22, verse 30, Christ talking about the resurrection here. Uh, well, verse 29, And Emmanuel answered and said to them, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Now, he's going to make a statement here where he says, You boys don't know the Scriptures. You'd understand the Word of God if you think thus and such, okay? What was the thus and such? For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. The angels of God in heaven, based on that statement, do not cohabit with each other and are incapable of cohabiting with human women. Uh, they could not beget children together. Now, did not God say, kind begets kind, way back in Genesis? And men have tried to breed animals of a different kind with animals of another kind, and it doesn't work. <coughs> the DNA, the genetic structure, has to be very similar for animals to breed. And that's part of the Scripture they didn't understand. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear that there's spirit and there's flesh, and they are not the same. I think he even mentions kind back there again, does he not? Uh, go back and review that just a little bit since we're here. I think this is an important issue that needs to be dealt with because it is a huge issue today among religionists and even some people in the church. First uh, Corinthians 15 over here. 
Let's see. About verse 38 we'll start. But God gives it a body as it has pleased Him, and to every seed His own body. Uh, seeds don't intermix with a different kind of seed readily. Mankind is finding ways to artificially put rat genes in bananas you know, or whatever, but that's unnatural. It's not right, and it creates all kinds of weird things. Uh, but there is one kind, and they don't do it through breeding. They do it through petri dishes and mixing the, gen, the genes together in some form or fashion. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. And you can't breed them, intermix them back and forth. Then he talks, there are also celestial, terrestrial, and the celestial is higher than the Terrestrial. Celestial means in the heavens, terrestrial is on the earth. Terra firma. One glory of the sun and the moon, and they're different. So is the resurrection of the dead. One is corruptible, the other is incorruptible. They're different. Uh, verse 45, so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul, and, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit, speaking of Christ. Uh, the spiritual came after that which was natural. Verse 47, the first man is of the earth earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven. As we have borne the image of the earthy, verse 49, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't get from here to there if you're still flesh. You have to be changed to spirit. Well, spirit and flesh are not alike. They're not the same in any form or fashion. And they certainly couldn't. Uh, breed back and forth and beget back and forth. It, they're different. That's what Christ was saying. So you can start putting some scriptures together and see that they're somehow abusing and misusing and reading things in a Genesis 6 that aren't there. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to this in a moment. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that sound like the world and society today? Lying, cheating, stealing, defrauding, Ponzi schemes, and all kinds of ways to have our way, violence on the earth, uh, genocide here and there, people, nations trying to destroy other nations. Uh, it's getting like it was then. And God said, if I don't intervene right here at the end, because of a very few elect, no flesh would be saved alive. He wouldn't even have to do it. We'd do it to ourselves. So the earth is getting just about where it was before God sent the flood and destroyed all mankind. Only evil continually. And it repented the eternal that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. He's grieved today. And he says, if it weren't for a very few of you who will follow my ways, I would wipe them all out. Just like he had in his attitude then. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can only abide sin so long. And then he says, I can fix this. And has the power to do it. 
Now, he is patient with us, and he gives us space for repentance. But at the same time, there will be a time where judgment is complete. Judgment is now upon us on the house of God. And he's being patient. He's giving us opportunity to change, to grow, to be like he is. But ultimately, if that does not occur, he will not give us eternal life. He will throw us in the lake of fire. We'll be burned up and die, and that's the end of it. He knows how to deal with the problem. He hopes, however, that we make the changes we need to make so that he can lovingly give us the gift of eternal life, which he so desperately wishes to do. It is my good pleasure to give you the kingdom, he says. That's what he wants to do. So we've got a very evil situation there, even as we have today. And the Eternal said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repents me that I have made them. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Eternal. Let's go down, we'll come back to that, to verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. The way of God they know not. They had corrupted His way of peace and love and joy and happiness and cooperation and giving and serving and become violent, selfish, corrupt, lying, cheating, stealing, so on. It was not a racial problem here. It was a problem with all mankind here. Now let's go back with that in mind. Well, let's see, verse 13. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. Noah, you're a righteous man, but he said, I've about had it, Noah. The end of all flesh is right in front of my eyes. I'm about ready to pull the plug, man. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You know, you reap what you sow. And he said, they're killing each other down there. I'll just kill them all. I'll fix this. Now, with that judgment of God, let's go back and examine the story in the first part of the chapter again. It came to pass when men began to multiply that the daughters were born to them, and the men looked around and said, hey, I like girls, that they were beautiful or good-looking to them, appealing. And they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, we've already seen down here what culture society had become. It had become very violent. It had become very selfish. Murder was happening right and left. All right? It also says there were giants in the earth in those days, and they saw the daughters of men, and they picked the women they wanted, and they became mighty men. I mean, if it's in the genetic makeup to have a giant and he gets married, then he might have more giants, you know. All right, let's consider. If you had these men who were 12, 13 feet tall, and then you have these others who are six, seven, eight feet tall. Who do you think is going to get the prettiest girl? 
Isn't that pretty obvious? Thirteen can whoop seven or eight pretty easy. (laughs) And it was a time of great violence, corruption, and selfishness. So if there had been standards in society where men, well, maybe to some degree like ours, for instance, where you can, you can date and you can see one you like or another you like, and you say, I'd like that one. I'll ask her dad. I'll ask her if she'd like to marry me. You know, give her some choice. Give her a decision of which man she wants out of the ones who've thrown their rat into the ring, if you will. Uh, and even in times when the father chose or helped choose, like with Isaac, and, and uh, Rebecca was said, well, do you want to go do this? I mean, it was an arranged deal, but she was consulted at least. If she'd have said, no, man, that doesn't appeal to me at all. Dad, forget it, Dad. He'd have probably said, well, okay, you know, because he did ask her. So he honored her in that sense. Uh, it sounds to me like, reading this context, But you just pick the one you wanted, and if you're bigger than the other guy, you sliced his head off and took her anyway. It sounds like that kind of society. (coughs) In other words, social structure and normal life had broken down, and it was the survival of the strongest. It was street warfare, gang warfare. The big guys get anything they want. If you're a little guy, you better get out of my way. I want that girl. And if you're married to her, so what? She's mine now. Head gone? No husband. Okay, you're mine, sister. Come on. I think that was what was going on. Now, they have uncovered, in this country, as well as in other places on the earth, uh, uh, skeletons of men who were... 13, 14 feet tall. You know what? They were human. There were giants in the earth. Remember when they went into the promised land, they sent the spies in there, and they came out and just one bunch of branches, one bunch of grapes took two men to carry? I'm sure the individual grapes are as big as grapefruit. Where'd that term come from? Grapefruit. Uh, the grapes had to have been large. And one bunch, two men to carry, I think is what it says. And it says there were giants in the promised land. We'll find out later who was in the promised land and what color the giants were. But there were big men. Once in a while, even now, there was recently, there was a Chinaman that's, I think, nine feet tall. And... No angel had visited his mama. So, uh, he's all human, as far as anybody could tell. Well, it's only, what, four feet from nine to thirteen. That's no big deal. For me to thirteen is quite a ways, or for me to nine is a long ways. Some NBA players, I'd, you know, if I knock on them to get their attention, it'd be on their knee. Uh... Why is it so hard for people to realize that God's Word is true and that there could be human beings who were 13, 14, 15 feet tall? And you dig some up, and they were, and wow, there were giants in the earth in those days. God told us that a long time ago. 
But man can't accept that, so he says, well, it must have been demons. Came down and, and got with women because they were called the sons of God, and these were the children of, these daughters were of men. Let me throw uh, another thought in here. And I don't know whether this is true or not. This is a concept that Dr. Hay brought up many years ago. And uh, Dr. Hay was, in some respects, a very brilliant man. And in some ways, he was not always logical. Uh, So take it, I guess, for what it's worth. Uh, But he may have hit on something that is a possibility here. And I, I don't know one way or another for sure. But I want to run it by you as just another possibility here, which would help explain why chapter 6 is worded like it was about the sons of God and the daughters of men. Uh, All right, in chapter 4, Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And Dr. Hay said that the word from was not in the original text. Now, I have not checked this and I should have. But it it says that she said, I have gotten a man, the Lord. This was her firstborn. It was the first child that was ever born on earth. Cain came first, Abel second, probably 15 minutes later maybe, but Cain was the first child born, okay? (coughs) Now, consider that Adam and Eve had basically broken their relationship with God. They had worshipped Satan, and they had worshipped themselves ahead of God. And I don't know whether they had regained or retained or had any kind of relationship with God from that time on. Nothing more really is said about Adam and Eve after the deal with their kids was mentioned. And they lived over 900 years. Uh, But it's quiet. Some people think uh, Adam and Eve lost their chance at salvation. I don't think so. I don't think they were ever converted. And they never had opportunity at the tree of life. And I believe that God is going to give every human being an opportunity at the tree of life before it's all over. Uh, I broke my opportunity to go to the tree of life, I, I don't know, it was shortly after I was born, I'm sure. It wasn't too long. Uh, but God has given me an opportunity. And I think He will do that with everyone. Adam and Eve aborted theirs quite quickly uh, before it was ever even really offered. And they didn't understand the implications of it until they actually went over the edge and broke the first and great commandment. So I think people trying to make a judgment on Adam and Eve are way out of, out of line. That's God's judgment, not man's. At any rate, uh, Dr. Hay felt that uh, she worshipped her son, Cain. He also felt that Cain was black and that probably uh, Abel was pale or white. Now, I guess he was assuming Adam and Eve were white, but I think they were red, so I I don't know where that goes. Uh, We're just throwing some thoughts out here for consideration. Uh, Now, Cain got jealous of his brother, and we all know what happened there. But let's go back to chapter 6 and see if we can understand it from this context. Now, I did look up the word for God uh, here, the sons of God in chapter 6, verse 2, and it's Elohim, 
are the same as others. But if you look up Elohim in the Hebrew, it says that it can be a God or it can be the God. It can be general and unspecific or it can be specific. It can be talking about Heavenly Father, Creator, or the word can within the confines of the Hebrew language being some God, a God, a God of somebody, as opposed to the true one and holy God, El, uh, plural, uh, Elohim, speaking of the Father and the Son. So the Hebrew does allow for, at least in the language itself, uh, what I'm about to say. It became to pass... Now, all right, before I go there, uh, we know the story of Isis and Osiris, of uh, Semiramis and Nimrod, where Semiramis worshipped her son Cain, okay? Um, her son Nimrod, I mean. And you have there the mother and child story. Uh, and then when Nimrod died... Some claim Esau killed him. That may have been the case. I don't know for sure. But uh, she claimed that a full-grown evergreen tree sprung up overnight from a dead stump. Hence, the Christmas tree was born. And the worship of Nimrod, Santa Claus, continued from there. Uh, So, you have that mother and child scenario, which we all understand, We've read the two Babylons and all that. We know that that, uh, from history, apparently was the case between Semiramis and Nimrod and Isis and Osiris and Horus and uh, so many of these gods of the Romans or the Greeks or the Egyptians or wherever go right back. They've got different names for them. They all go back to that relationship at the Tower of Babel or shortly thereafter. Now, let's consider that Satan hates fathers. Okay? He hated the Father first. He tried to destroy God in heaven and supplant Him and become the Father, or that is, the ruler of the universe. So fatherhood is high on the list of things Satan wants to destroy. Uh, Did he possibly take advantage of a relationship between Eve and her first child and cause the first mother and son relationship, which was later then copied by Nimrod and Semiramis, or Semiramis and Nimrod, and then later by Mary and Jesus. Because there again you have the mother and child deception applied to Christ Himself. And Satan set that up. Father is put in the background. Mother is worshipped by especially the Catholics and by uh, the Protestants as well. They still accept the mother and child. Uh, and it goes back to Isis and Osiris. It goes all the way back, but it really goes back to Satan. And... He would like us to worship Mary and baby Jesus, not a full-grown man died for us, became glorified. We've heard that concept before. But Satan thinks that way, see. He started out by hating man. Well, what has our society come to today? 
Satan is attacking the family. He's trying to take the father out of it. He's trying to make the mother the ruler at home and have her go make a living as well and have kids raised in daycare. And even our comics and so on, some of you know and some don't, Dagwood and Blondie, he was always made to be a real stupid doofus that didn't know anything and, and Blondie had all the answers. But that's the way a lot of our cartoons, that's the way a lot of our sitcoms, that's the way our whole society now is structured, is to make Dad look like a bumbling fool. And too often we are. Uh, but <laughs> they're trying to destroy Dad and the family. And they're very quickly doing it. And now we've got Queer Nation where they're turning them into homosexuals so they won't even be fathers and women toward women, and destroying the family unit. Well, this has been Satan's goal from the time he rebelled against God the Father to this very day. And until God intervenes and stops that, it's going to keep going in that direction. So the natural way that God built, they're destroying. And there are some indications of homosexuality perhaps even this early. And if man had lived a thousand years on the earth, I'm sure that it was probably rampant uh, because man was absolutely corrupt and they were going the opposite way of God's way and he was ready to just throw up his hands and destroy it all. How did it get to be nine o'clock? Let me try to finish this, at least this one thought. Um, So, pick it up in chapter six now. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, so daughters of men, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. Now, if Cain had been put in the position of God by his mother, then the sons of Cain would have been looking upon other daughters of men, and Cain was in a deified state, Uh, Now, Eve was probably a pretty influential woman, I would consider, in the early days before the flood. She was the mother of all mankind. Uh, She probably had a great deal of influence on her children and grandchildren and great-children and great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren because they lived a long time. And uh, if she had set Cain aside as an object of worship, then that would have tended to catch on because of her influence and him being, at that point, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve and uh, having the rights of firstborn and everything else that goes with it. But he could have been looked upon as a god as later Nimrod was and as others have been as a result of what people tend to do. Well, if Cain were a black man, and if he were worshipped as God, then the sons of Cain would have looked upon the daughters of men. Uh, It wouldn't have mattered what race, or whether they were married or unmarried, as I said earlier, uh, or whether they were were fair here. In the Hebrew, I looked it up, it doesn't necessarily mean light-skinned or white. It just means basically beautiful. Now, But the term can in some instances, reflect uh, skin color or uh, lighter or darker coloration. So there is that possibility here, and I don't know it for sure. 
But if they were the giants, and we'll find later that black men tended to be the giants among the races of men, uh, they could do whatever they wished. And they could take them from away from anybody they wanted to. So God said, I will not strive with this. And there were giants in those days. Uh, Numbers 13, 32. Let me run back there just a moment. Numbers 13. Uh, this is where they went into the land. Caleb said, we need to go do this. And the other said, oh no. They brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now, if you look at somebody and you feel like a grasshopper, he is considerably larger than you. Now, these guys might have exaggerated a little bit, I don't know. But I've known people who were right at seven feet tall, and I felt diminutive. I suddenly got small man syndrome, I think. Uh, with somebody, I, I still remember this day, that one guy who was 6'10", coming up and patting me on the head and said, How are you today, little man? <laughs> I couldn't do anything about it. It's just as big as I was. Anyway, these people in the promised land were so tall that these Israelites felt like grasshoppers. So there must have been a considerable difference. And this was after the flood, by the way, when all of those people had there were half angels so called and half man must have perished. How did which half of them died? You can't kill a spirit. If they were half spirit and half flesh I don't know, maybe they just drowned at one end. It's just stupid. Anyway, there were the sons of Cain, maybe, were the tall ones, and they kind of took over. They just took whichever women they wanted. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, verse 8, Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the eternal. These are the generations of Noah. Now, is this speaking of his genetics and a straight line from Adam and Eve down to him? Or is this talking about his conduct? I could see a case either way, and the commentaries have it both ways in some cases. It says, Noah was a just man, now, his conduct certainly was a major part of this because this whole context here is of violence and uh, ungodliness and doing away with the way of God. So him being a just or a righteous man is, I would say, the biggest factor here in Noah being the man that God chose since he decided, well, I'm not going to wipe them all out. i got one good guy here. I'll have him build a boat, and uh, we'll save him. We'll, we'll start over. So his conduct was of 
extreme importance. It says he was a just man and perfect or upright in his generations. Now, does that mean that throughout uh, his background there had been righteousness? Or is this talking about his pedigree not being mixed in race? I don't know. Noah walked with God. That's the main thing. So the, the, the two statements here, being a just man and walking with God, are the biggest keys. The other one is perhaps somewhat of a question mark. I don't know. And he begat these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, it appears obvious that after the flood, the three races of man came through Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We'll get to that a bit later. But... <clears throat> to me, this being a thing where Cain was worshipped, I, I don't know where... Doc, he read a lot of different stuff, and I don't know where he got this idea or where he formulated this, and it might not be true at all. I wanted to, to run it by you as another possibility because it is far more plausible and could have happened and would fit in with the pattern of what Satan does with mother and child and so on, uh, a whole lot better than fallen angels come and cohabiting with women, which, if you believe that, you don't understand Scripture. It's like Peter said about Paul. Those who are unlearned and ignorant of Scripture can be taken and snared and deceived by something completely out of the range of possibility based on the rest of the Bible. And when this idea came up about marrying, and I think the context there was a second resurrection, you've got to cut the babies off somewhere. Uh, there's not going to be that kind of cohabitation, I guess. And he says, for an example, he says, it'll be like the angels in heaven. Can't do it. Don't have the equipment. Don't have the same likeness. The angels were not created as man was in the exact image of God. Man is in the same shape, form, and everything about a man is like God. God's not a mannequin. Uh, but the angels apparently are. So, take that for what it's worth. I don't know. It's more plausible whether it's a problem or not, or whether it's true or not, I guess, remains to be seen. Uh, but it may be so simple here that, well, you got the sons of God and the daughters of men that you have to deal with one way or another. That's, that's the thing in there that gives these people their opportunity to say it was demons, or Dr. Hay to formulate this idea that Cain was worshipped, which is a distinct possibility, and then did what he wanted because uh, his race was bigger than anybody else around. They just whooped up on everybody. And I'm not, there's no racial slur here. This may or may not have been the case. Uh, but if so, uh, Cain and his descendants were not the only evil around. It was everybody. So I'm not trying to single out anybody here. I'm just saying this may be historically what occurred. I don't know, but it would explain the difference between what you mean sons of God. But there are, sons of God can be angels. Sons of God can be human beings by creation. Sons of God can be 
Christians uh, set apart as a a special category of the sons of God. When we're glorified, then we're glorified sons of God. So it's an upgrade. So I don't think we have to go with Dr. Hayes' theory. We certainly can't go with an unscriptural one about demons. But it could just simply be here a matter of the way the guy wrote it. These sons of God, these particular ones, did this to daughters of men. Is it making a difference between, why didn't it say the daughters of men took the sons of men? Or why didn't it say the sons of God took the daughters of God as human beings? There is a difference in the way it's worded is the reason there's a conflict here. So, how is it resolved? I don't know that I've resolved it tonight, but I gave you some thoughts that may or may not be. But above all, I wanted to debunk this idea of the fallen angels cohabiting with women. That is totally ungodly and unscriptural. Throw that one away in the books that go with it, because all we need on that one is this book to tell us the truth if we understand the scriptures. Giants were there because of genetics. Uh, God allowed that within the genes of man. Goliath was nine and a half feet tall, for instance, and he was all Philistine. And we'll find out who the Philistines were later. Your view that you got from the movies is not right. Anyway, we ran out of time. Let's stop there for tonight, and I just barely got started.